The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. And you're most welcome back to the programme. Bobby in for Pat this morning. Now, to look back at the key topics of the week, including the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and Joe Biden's eagerly anticipated visit, delighted to be joined by Gary Gannon, Social Democrats, DT. TD even for Dublin Central, Senator Mary Siri Carney of Fine Gael and David Quinn, uh, columnist with the Sunday Independent, all join me now for the Friday Forum. We'll start with housing, Gary. Um, we saw, um, you know, the ending of the of the eviction ban. What, in your view, are people supposed to do now? That's people who are maybe in the in, in the in the firing line here. That's the question we've been asking for the last month and a bit since this farcical announcement was made by the government. But it's even more than that, Bobby. So, firstly, we never really got an answer to that question. I asked Leo Varadkar directly. He told me they could either go to Flack or somewhere else. And then Flack turned around and said, actually, they haven't been resourced. They're not um, able to deal with the level of demand that's coming their way. This week, however, we found something else that even compounded this travesty even more. The RTB announced their figures this week that 7,000 families in this country who are standing there with a sword of Damocles over the head of eviction. That was only announced this week, despite the fact that the Department of Housing have had those figures since February. We were asking for those figures in the last couple of weeks. They never were forthcoming. Eamon Ryan said in the last couple of days that he can't remember if he asked them for them or not before he made the decision. I cannot believe that. This will be something I think we'll all be pushing next week when we back to the doll as to why these figures were not announced. The RTB had passed them over to the department. The department the minister said he didn't have them. They weren't given to ourselves in opposition as we had a debate in the issue. I think that is an absolute abdication of duty on the department of the government. Uh, David Quinn, um, the human tragedy here, the suffering, the eviction, the people not knowing where they're staying next week or next month. Like, aside from all the politics and semantics around it, this is a truly tragic human story is it not? Yeah well I think I mean both sides of the argument are agreed that um, the housing situation and the rental situation of the country are a disaster a human crisis and disaster and a huge tragedy for a lot of the people at the centre of it but I think both sides of the debate about the eviction ban and the lifting of it are also um, united in not wanting to make the situation worse Yeah, and where the clash is between both sides between the government and the opposition is what will make things worse so is the eviction is lifting the, the eviction ban now making things worse or would um, uh, leaving it in place ultimately make things worse because, Hobson's choice Yeah and so you know both sides I think are well motivated in it um, and so that's the key question for me uh, what would make things worse my own opinion by the way is that um, leaving the eviction ban in place would probably make things worse by driving even more landlords ultimately out of the marketplace mm. um, uh, by creating more uncertainty for them. They don't know what will be the next rules imposed by whatever government and that kind of uncertainty um, is not conducive to landlords wanting, these are the small landlords mainly, wanting to invest in property to rent out. And so we just keep seem, we seem to keep on making the situation worse and worse and worse of what we're doing. Uh, Mary Siri Carney, have the have we have, have have the government sort of exasperated the situation by pitting the landlord against the tenant? Maybe not intentionally, but has that been the result of this argument? And yet we have an unresolved solution. 
I suppose probably I come from it from a place, uh, a reasonably unique place that all of my adult life I have worked to assist people who are at risk of homelessness, be that running or, or in homelessness, be that running soup runs, then actually building 55 units of accommodation for young people at risk of homelessness, then going on when I when I became a barrister of working pro bono for years to stop repossessions and keep families in their family home and restructuring their finance. So I suppose when I when I go into parliamentary parties, when I speak, I speak from that place of actually walking alongside and people and seeing it up close. And the the uh, and I sit on the housing committee and and have had the privilege of being part of the housing for all solution. And in that. The, the, the crux of the, the, the government's response is supply, supply, supply. If we can absolutely multiply the amount of supply, then we are, we are affecting real change when it comes to homelessness. And, the, and at the heart of the decision to end the eviction ban was the decision to stop this bleed of landlords. We've had 40,000 private landlords have exited the market in the last five years. That's 40,000 homes that either perhaps came back in, became family homes. So ultimately people are living there. But we need supply. We need everybody to throw the kitchen sink at it. And that's what I see. And I suppose in the in the talk of figures this week, we, what we have lost is, and what we don't get, perhaps it's the good news. So in the competition on the left, uh, we, we don't get to, to talk about the good news. But the good news is that last year we had more social homes provided in the state, more in the, in the state since 19, than since 1975. More uh, first-time buyers had homes. 35,000 people have, have um, benefited from the help to buy. 7,000 people a month are applying for that. So the, the government's policy of supply in every way without getting hung up on philosophy of it but actually trying to assist supply in yeah. every way possible that is making okay. an effect yeah. and Let's that is making Gary changes. I, mean, I think it's unbecoming to say this is a competition on the left we're all dealing with I'm sure yourself included this family's coming to us talking to us about the fact that they're about to be made evicted and mm. asking us where to go you're getting that the same as I am so what we are mm-hmm. looking for is solutions nobody expected the eviction ban to stay forever but what we did expect during that six months world in the contingency would have been put in place. What we actually got was a haphazard suggestion at the end that we would have um, more funding put into the tenants and situs scheme, which is great. But still, if you go to the AHBs, which you know as well as I do, they can't tell you where the funding is coming from, when they're getting it, how much more is coming to them. If you go looking for the first option to buy the home if you're being evicted, there is actually no legislation in place for that. Um, we had a situation this week where Airbnb have announced that you have 4,000 accommodations in this city alone, whole accommodations given over to Airbnb. That would make a difference. There was talk over the last number of years of regulating that. There's nothing there. I appreciate we've mm-hmm. had some degree of, well, we still afford and full accommodations in this city. We have a registration system. We have and we have. All one, of that. Do you know how many people were fined in the last year for breaking that system? One, one person got a one thousand euro fine. Okay, let me bring in David Quinn. Um, we also read during the week, David, that there was a one billion underspend mm. in the Department of Housing. Now, um, it was true. I think maybe there was people making hay of it because there was certainly a period of it that was during the high end of COVID where certain building activity couldn't take place. But is it acceptable that €1 billion euro wasn't uh, an underspend of €1 billion euro happened in a, in a two-year period? Well, no, it wasn't. Um, I think I heard last night on the news that um, 
would have built about 400 social houses. and then we've 4,000, I think it was. What's a four, sorry, 4,000. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 10 times as many. So that's a lot. Um, and then obviously there was a lots of private houses not built either in the same period. So one of the things that the upcoming COVID inquiry is going to have to consider is, um, uh, I know this is after the event, but we've got to make sure we don't repeat the same mistake in the future. Was the construction industry kept closed too long? Um, I think we kept our, in, our construction industry shut down longer than anywhere in Europe. Yeah. And that is having real world effects now. You know, we were told we were following the science, but if we were the ones keeping construction closed longer than anyone, weren't they all trying to follow the science? Yeah, I think so, that's a fair point. Yeah, so why do we keep everything shut down longer? And again, it's having effects now on the housing supply. Mary, we might move to the Good Friday Agreement 25 years on, but sadly we seem to be in a not a great place in Northern Ireland. We've got, you know, a threat of dissident action this weekend, a PSNI on high alert, uh, but we also, you know, we, we it, it's Easter, um, and, you know, we're being reminded of a huge event and, you know, we're celebrating 25 years of, 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 of almost full peace, but, you know, it's, 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 it's very fragile. I, I'm, well, Absolutely, I agree with all, all of that. So let let let's start with, with a couple of a couple of things about the Good Friday Agreement. Um, first of all, it's right that we celebrate. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember the reports. I'm old enough to know when you went on holidays that people would say you're afraid to go out because the bombings in Dublin, where people had no concept of what was going on in Ireland and where it was placed. So I think it's right that we celebrate that there are people who are 25 years of age now who have never had that news bulletins of bombings and of death and murder on a daily basis in the way that there was. But it is a peace process. And I think sometimes that gets lost, that we're still at the heart of an actual process. And it is a very fragile process and that there is ongoing change. And that process and that that declaration of peace and that outworking of peace came at at sacrifice. And and I suppose the sacrifice that I sit with uh, a lot and think about a lot and, and my colleague Senator Emer Curry does a lot with is those of the surviving families who had to stand and stomach people walking out of jail in order to deliver the, the Good yeah. Friday Agreement that had murdered their loved ones. You know, you think you think about families like that. You know, I, I personally know the widow of, of Patsy Gillespie who, how, how, who drove to his death knowing he was driving to his death to be a human bomb um, for the, the, the sin of being a chef yeah. in an army base and knew that there was a gun to the heads of his wife and children back in their house. Those families said, now that woman is, Kathleen Gillespie has been amazing. She spent a life building peace and making sure that her children didn't turn to revenge um, and didn't go into into um, into the, the violence. But those families have yet to see justice. And the, the idea of the legacy bill hanging over them, that, that is unacceptable. Okay. And also rhetoric that needs to be set aside by all parties and all sides of somehow glorifying the violence and the death needs to hand. We, we saw <coughs> last year Thomas Wackelwee, one of the, the uh, hunger strikers, commemorated in, in, in a big fanfare on social media. What about Vaughan Rowland and, and or Vaughan Dunlop? The, the words that were used that he was kind and good natured. He wasn't kind and good natured to the woman that died as a consequence of the firebomb and the children that were left behind. So we need to be very sensitive okay. and very uh, very kind and compassionate to those families all of the time. Gary, I think you, you, you accept and you believe that we should. It is right to celebrate the agreement. Um, we, we did a piece earlier on the show today about how quickly we forget 
how how the young people of today, some of them don't even know how many people were, were killed in the trouble. Yeah. So it's even a bit like COVID. You move on. We don't really mean to move on, but but we actually do. Yeah, and I think that's important. I think that's the important of history lessons in class as well, yeah. that we teach in this history and that when we commemorate it, we commemorate it in the right way. I was 10 at the time of the Good Friday Agreement. I still have images off the front of the newspapers that day that kind of led me to see the significance of it. But as, as Mary said, there is a process and I suppose sometimes that can almost become a cliche or something that we allow ourselves to forgive for the failings of the good for of the what came afterwards but for me this is about social development in the north as well so lowest some of the highest levels of poverty in the whole of the of the whole of Europe no longer the EU unfortunately and um, some of the lowest levels of attainment in education we still have those peace walls over 60 peace walls there that, and it's two communities operating almost together but separately and actually seeing um this space for that collaboration um seeing Viewing the kind of the divides and trying to break that, that has to be part of moving forward. That yeah. Uh, David, your own thoughts uh, 25 years. Yeah. A lot's happened, but there's still. Brexit maybe hasn't helped the scenario mm-hmm. in that it's it's brought us to an another, I suppose. It's a different type of conflict, but it's it's conflict nevertheless. No, no doubt. I mean, I guess what was decided in the huge achievement of the, of the Good Friday Agreement was um, both sides resolved to try and achieve their aims peacefully. So obviously the Nationalists said, we're not going to use violence to achieve United Ireland. And the Unionists said, well, we're not going to use violence to keep the North within the United Kingdom. But obviously what was unresolved was, um, well, how do we solve the national question? Yeah. Um, and obviously one side still wants unity and the other side still wants to remain part of the UK. And uh, I mean, how is that going to be resolved? And, um, uh, you know, there seems to be a certain inevitability eventually uh, that we'll have unity. But then how welcome do we make the Unionists and the Protestants of the North feel down here? You see opinion polls indicating that we don't want to change the tricolour and we don't want to change the national anthem. And how will we react when we have a bunch of DUP politicians in Leinster House? How will we make them feel? And so there's a lot of talk in the country about uh, things like diversity and inclusion and minorities. So yeah. if we have a united Ireland and you have a significant Protestant unionist minority in the country that have a lot of views that a lot of people in the South won't like, how will we react to that? And they're looking down here and they're thinking they're not going to make us feel very welcome. Um, so it, we it, little... It's almost like if you if you go back 25 years ago, it's about, it's about bravery, political bravery, mm. people having to do stuff that they're very uncomfortable doing, mm. but they do it for the greater cause. But this is the thing. And it was occurring to me, I know this is a separate issue, but will there one day have to be a Good Friday Agreement for Ukraine-Russia, where both sides conclude we cannot achieve a total victory through arms. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it took, like the Sunningdale Agreement was, what, 73 or 74? And the Good Friday Agreement is called Sunningdale for Slow Learners. And the Good Friday Agreement wasn't all that different from the Sunningdale Agreement. And uh, thousands died in between times because both sides were thinking, we can achieve our aims through force of arms. Yeah. And then both sides were forced into a compromise. Of course, it was a compromise ultimately down here, um, you know, with treaty and independence. And it was a civil war because one side said this compromise is completely unacceptable. So there was more fighting and so you look at the Ukraine 
Russia conflict and you're thinking, do they need a Good Friday agreement there with the likes of America chipping in, the European Union chipping in, the Chinese chipping in and trying to get the Russians to see sense, which is what uh, President Macron was saying to Xi Jinping on the visit to Beijing this week. And so, you know, they talk very frequently about and rightly about the way the Good Friday Agreement has been uh, a model internationally. But I wonder if it can be um, applied in some way, shape or form to the Ukraine-Russia war. And of course, when you suggest this on the likes of Twitter, you have people saying no compromise, which is exactly what's been said here once upon a time. But but, but there's an interesting thing of the Good Friday Agreement, and that is this two-party sharing, you know, um, and and we have had one or other party Mm -hmm. exercising almost a veto on the institutions Mm -hmm. of the North. What would have happened in the election and if in in any subsequent election, if the Alliance Party had won a majority? There isn't a facility within the Good Friday Agreement for that. And I think that at some stage, that's something that we need to consider if the current status quo were to were to remain on for much longer. The Alliance Alliance Party still ultimately have to say where do they stand on the national question. Yes, yeah. The principles of consent are built into the good mm, Friday yeah, agreement. Yeah. I think the alliance are very true to the idea that actually that's a conversation that's con- continuously I mean, yes. yeah, and, yeah. and, it's built and in. by not taking yes. a position Mary, in actual when I have you there, uh, the pressure is, 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 is increased because the eyes of the world are on us uh, because uh, Joe Biden is going to be visiting mm-hmm. uh, Ireland and indeed Northern Ireland uh, this in the next couple of days. So so we've the world looking in. So that's going to bring added pressure to the celebration of the Good Friday 25 years. What are your own thoughts about Joe Biden's visit? Uh, well, I've, I've two or three things on that. First of all, it will be good for a focus to be on the Good Friday Agreement, on all that has achieved uh, and and for in every way to celebrate Ireland. That would be fantastic. I'm particularly pleased for the people in Ballina, um, who it's a beautiful part of Mayo. My own family are from just outside it in Kalala. And for that focus of the world to see just how beautiful Mayo was. And I read in the papers this morning that in Loud they're calling it the Hooli on the Cooley. And I love that. Um, so I think that focus on Ireland is a really good thing and, and more pressure on Ireland, Ireland than for Mayo I, I am in the extraordinary <laughs> privilege privileged a place uh, where I will have the opportunity to sit in the Doyle Chamber while the fourth American president makes an address uh, as a senator that's a once in a lifetime I agree with you. I think it's a wonderful very occasion. excited about that um, and I just think this is, is this is amazing it's an amazing yeah. time to be in politics um, will anything be achieved out of the focus yes it's good to re- reinvigorate the process to remember the process and to cherish why it was needed and why we need to keep investing in it all of the time. And if that's patience to the DUP, then it's patience to the DUP. Um, and that, that we we uh, that we are careful in how the commemorations happen in Northern Ireland. That it's not um, gloating. That, it's, yeah, yeah, it's not any of those things. And that they're, that they're not obliged or being forced by the circumstance. But that said, it's a fantastic opportunity to showcase all of our country and our beautiful island. Gary Gannon, we punch above our weight internationally when it comes to, you know, getting access to American presidents. Uh, to have the fourth one, as Mary says, yeah, we uh, do. arriving here now. This is his second time here, but he he's a true friend of Ireland. He seems to be. Yeah, we do. And we punch above our weight when it comes to America for the very reason that Irish people have gone there for de- generations. And worked and hard. Worked and hard and contributed <laughs> to building it. And some of it, there's a bit of politicking going on with some aspects of it. But before we take that, um, I'm somewhat excited about Joe Biden coming. I hadn't actually thought about it until your researcher asked me. I was like, so everybody else around me seems to be talking <laughs> to me about it. He's kind of getting on with the job. But yeah, I'm I am. I am excited about it. Uh, What about you, David? Well, I mean, 
every American president comes here, it seems to be. And uh, I like. I wonder, do, like, does every American president automatically go to a certain country within their term? Like, do they auto, do, does every American president automatically go to another small country like Denmark or Finland and Norway? I don't think they do. So there is this amazing connection, all right. And I remember speaking to a diplomat once. And um, well, the Irish American vote is probably bigger than the Danish American uh, vote. Yeah, but it's not. But the Swedish <laughs> vote is very big. Yeah. I mean, we kind of overlook that kind of thing, and you don't see the kind of same sentimental attachment. I think of Swedish Americans to. Um, Sweden yeah. that we seen, you know, that Irish Americans seem to have to Ireland. But I was speaking to a diplomat once, and he was kind of remarking in wonder at the fact that we have this automatic day in the White House every year and in Congress every year with a St. Patrick's Day, because if every country had that, actually, to be people coming in automatically every single year for their national day, <laughs> so we're rare enough we have it. Um, and I think for American presidents, it's usually a kind of low stress visit and photo opportunity to come to Ireland, especially for Democrats. We tend to object more when Republican presidents come, even when they have Irish roots, because that's what happened when Ronald Reagan was here, for example. But for Democrats, certainly, there's always a warm welcome. But actually, just on, on the point about Biden being pro-Irish, he is. But when America's interests come first, actually, he's quite prepared to sacrifice Irish interests, because it was him, ultimately, who made us raise the corporate tax rate, yeah. uh, which is something that hadn't happened previously. The EU for years wanted us to do it, and, but it didn't happen until a Democratic president called Joe Biden made us do it. All right. Well, listen, it's been a great discussion. My thanks to David Quinn, columnist with the Sunday Independent, Senator Mary Siri Carney from Fianna Gael and Gary Gannon, Social Democrats TV for Dublin Central. Thank you so much. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.